And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm your host, Robert Polly, And today I'm going to be talking to the writer Jonathan Gottschall about his latest book, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. Let's get right into the interview. Jonathan, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So for quite a few years now, I have been preoccupied with the subject of this book. No kidding. Which you can explain for us is? Uh, Storytelling and how stories make us human. Uh, The evolutionary mystery of stories, the science of storytelling, why we do story, and how story sort of affects us psychologically, behaviorally. And, And our almost compulsion to see or want everything in the form of a story. Yeah, I think compulsion is a, a nice word for it. I use the word addiction. <laughs> um, we spend a, you know just a huge chunk of our lives on Earth inside story worlds. Uh, more time, I argue, than we spend in the actual real world. Um, you know, we spend time in dreams and novels and films and daydreams. And uh, if you tot it all up, if you add up all those hours, it ends up being more time in this sort of imaginary story world than we spend in the real world. In fact, uh, you know, we... We often like pay our dues in the real world only to return to the story world when we get a That's chance. That's a very good point. Yeah, I never <laughs> thought about that. Yeah, it's like eating your vegetables so you can have dessert. <laughs> well, we work all day, uh, yeah. earn our money so that we can go to movies, read books, uh, uh, travel, and collect stories that way. My gosh, uh, that's absolutely true. I never thought of it that way. Like I think of it like you eat your vegetables all day, you go to work all day, so you can deserve and that 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 reward of a few hours on the couch reading a novel or watching a film. Uh, that's a really yeah, it's a really neat way of looking at it. And I said I've been preoccupied with it. It has been sneaking its way this subject into uh, a number of shows I've been doing recently hmm. about uh, fact and fiction in journalism and in entertainment about the. Famous, now famous, Mike Daisy episode yeah, and how yeah. storytelling got him into trouble. Yeah. About even some of my shows on science, about uh, telling stories in science. So I'm going to bring all those things up in our interview today. But um, first, um, did you get your, your book title from this quote that uh, you have as an epigraph uh, from Graham Swift? No. No, I think Graham Swift got in a time machine and stole it from me. Uh, yeah, that's from a, a novel Graham Swift uh, wrote, uh, uh, you know, I think 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, Waterland, what. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I discovered that after I had come up with, with the title for the novel. Uh-huh, so both you guys arrived at the same phrase, storytelling animal. Here's, here's Graham yeah. Swift's take from uh, the novel Waterland. Mm-hmm. Man, let me offer you a definition, is the storytelling animal. Wherever he goes, he wants to leave behind him not a chaotic wake, not an empty space, but the comforting marker buoys and trail signs of stories. He has to keep on making them up. As long as there's a story, it's all right. Even in his last moments, it's said, in the split second of a fatal fall or when he's about to drown, he sees, passing rapidly before him, the story of his whole life. And I guess that goes for women, too. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it does. (laughs) But that pretty much sums up, uh, you know, the thesis of your book. It's a beautiful little summation, yeah. That's why I use it as one of my uh, epigraphs. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, what, what Swift is saying there, I think, is um, that story is a tool we use to impose order on the chaos of our existence. Story is this essential thing in human life. Uh, without story, everything falls apart. Uh, everything becomes meaningless. Um, and disordered. Uh, story is the thing that sort of glues everything together, makes everything make sense, um, and makes life livable. You are a literature guy, right? You teach English. 
Yeah, my PhD is in English, yep. So it's really your field, uh, literary criticism, literary theory, that uh, I think has done the most to open our eyes to the, the uh, you know, sort of relentless power and grip of narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. It's been a big preoccupation um, for the last, uh, you know, a couple of decades. Um, this, this role, you know, yeah, just noticing, uh, this noticing, because the hardest thing about narrative is to notice it. It's, uh, you know, it's a fish and water thing. You know, we live our lives in stories. We're swimming through them, moving through them all the time. And so we, it's hard for us to notice story because it's just so familiar to us. And literary scholars were among the first to notice the ways that story penetrates all of our activities, um, all aspects of our lives, um, and really, you know, sort of defines us as a species. I mean, again, there's this whole debate. What is it that defines us as a species? What is it that makes us special? What is it that sets us apart from the rest of creation? And a lot of people said, well, you know, when you say our, our, our species' name, it's Homo sapiens. Well, that's an argument. It's an argument that what sets us apart is our sapiens, our intelligence, our wisdom. But then other people say, well, no, it's really language, or no, it's really the sophistication of culture or social organization or whatever. Um, the argument I'm making in the book is that all those things are really, really important, but uh, one thing is usually left off the list, um, and that's storytelling, the way that we live our lives and stories. And so one of the, one of the things I kind of half-joking do is sort of rename our species uh, Homo fictus, fiction man, uh, <laughs> or the beast that lives inside Voice. You know, uh, a lot of the, the so-called hard and fast distinctions between us and other animals have fallen away. We're not yeah, the only intelligent yeah. animal. We're not the only ones with, with language, mm -hmm. uh, even if our language is much more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But are we the only ones with stories? Well, I have a dog. His name <laughs> is Sam. Um, and, you know, he has a very rich imaginative life, I'm quite convinced. You know, he, he fights his stuffed animals in the house, and, you know, he's a coward and a weakling in real life. But when he's fighting his stuffed animals, you know, he's like, I, I feel like he's seeing himself as the hero of a doggy epic. You know, he's, he's buck in the call of the wild. Um, but that's kind of a joke, you know. I, I think for the most part, it, it, you have to have a very baggy and loose definition of story in order to cram other animals inside of it. There's some evidence, for instance, that female chimps um, may do some sort of pretend play, even pretend doll play. They walk around with sticks that they seem to cradle and care for like, uh, like mothers do. Um, but, yeah, for, for almost every other uh, thing, culture, language, uh, the sophistication of tool use. Tool use is surprisingly common among animals. Culture is very common among uh, chimpanzees and uh, some other apes. Um, but with storytelling, yeah, I, I don't think there are any good um, examples of, of, of animal precursors for that activity. And yet uh, we humans, uh, you know, start almost from the moment we can... Uh, you know, operate our bodies, uh, yeah. absorbing and, and retelling stories. I've got a good little anecdote for you. A friend of mm -hmm. mine, uh, his one-and-a-half-year-old son, Oscar, was really excited to tell me one day after daycare that something incredible had happened. His stuffed bear had <laughs> had basically had a hole in it, and the stuffing started coming out. Oh, and no. and the, the woman who ran the daycare stuffed it back in. And that was the whole story. It went uh -huh. something like this. It went, the, the bear was named Woof. So he goes, Woof, leak. And yeah. then I think he said, I can't remember the woman's name, but fix. So-and-so wow. fix. Wow, wow, yeah. Now, now that's a story, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Really rudimentary, but it gets gets the uh, point across and support how important it was, right? I mean, because I guess it's pretty important. You know, like the he's bleeding 
and she saved them. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. it has it has the I think the the elementary ingredients that you you almost have a formula. You have a character. Mm-hmm. You have a problem. Mm-hmm. And you have an attempt to to fix the problem and in most yeah. stories it does get fixed, i.e. Yeah. happy ending. Yeah. And, and and Woof leak and Woof gets his stuffing put back inside of him has all of that. Right. <laughs> Again, this is this is something that's really obvious and even cliche. Is that stories are based around problems. They're based around um, conflicts. Uh, but again, there's another question you have to ask: is, is why? Why are stories structured that way? So, if you were like a Martian anthropologist or a Martian literary scholar, and you were and you knew humans told stories, but you didn't know what they were about, and you had to guess about what their stories would be like, you knew humans had this weird ability to teleport into imaginary universes. What would you guess those imaginary universes would be like? I think you'd guess, well, they'd be wish fulfillment. They'd be paradises. They'd be places where you had unlimited sex and unicorns and all the fried ice cream you could eat, you know? Um, but that's not what you find in our fantasies. This goes for little kids. This goes for grown-up fantasies. This goes for literature and storytelling all around the world. What you find is the same basic problem structure. Stories are about characters facing problems and seeking to overcome. If they're not structured that way, they either, one, don't draw attention, or two, people just kind of don't recognize them as stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you quote, you have a lot of uh, you know, research that you cite in your book, but w- one little fascinating bit is an observation by Brian Sutton Smith, who you call mm. a play scholar, someone who studies play among children. Yeah, yeah. And he, he, he writes, The typical actions in orally told stories by young children include being lost, being stolen, being bitten, dying, being stepped on, being angry, calling the police, running away, or falling down. In their stories, they portray a world of great flux, anarchy, and disaster. Yeah, that's it. Chaos, anarchy, disaster. How do we think about storytelling with little kids? Or how do you think about Wonderland? I think most of us look back on it nostalgically. We should always be aware of nostalgia. Nostalgia is a liar. Um, we think of Wonderland as a sort of heavenly, sun-kissed bunny land where things are really nice. But Wonderland isn't like that. The place where children go to have their make-believe fantasies isn't like that at all. It's a dangerous place. It's a scary place. Another uh, developmental psychologist named Vivian Paley uh, says in the book, make-believe is where children go to rehearse bad things. You know, it's, where, it's where bad things are, are rehearsed and tried out. Um, so, yeah, Neverland is a, is a, is a dark uh, and dangerous place, but still very enjoyable. You're reminding me of why Maurice Sendak, who, who just died recently, was so great. Instead of making everything uh, benevolent and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sugar-coated, um, mm-hmm. his stories were about terror, and they were coming from his own, you know, terrified childhood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and my, you know, this is, this is uh, you know, very much what I find with my children also. You know, I read them stories. Like, I have a collection of folk tales. Uh, I have two daughters. And one of our collections of folk tales is a collection of tales about uh, young women, young female heroes around the world. And a lot of these tales are really dark and really scary. Um, they're sort of like Grimm's Brother uh, stuff, but before the Grimm's Brothers get scrubbed out and sanitized. Um, my kids are absolutely wrapped. They love it. Um, they don't. They're not scared of it. Uh, they are just. You know, there's, there's something about about. You know, Martin Amos puts it this way. He says what a, what a novel does, what a story does when a story is dealing with dark things, is it puts the monster in the cage, 
and allows you to examine the monster, look at it from every angle, fascinate, uh, you know, take fascination in it. But the monster's in the cage and it can't hurt you. It's a way of examining these things, exploring them uh, from safety. Um, sometimes, or sometimes the, the monster, uh, maybe just to get a sequel out of him, um, remains at large. You know, Jason <clears throat> and Freddy Krueger and all those guys never die. Yeah. Or do they? Uh yeah, I, no, I, th- I think you're. I think you're right. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's 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 demons and uh, boogeyman uh, that yeah, that can't ever be conquered. Um, I guess it's because they represent something. They represent evil, or they represent some some sort of you know darkness in the human soul that's really sort of unconquerable. Um, you list a lot of attempts to explain this storytelling instinct in us by evolutionary biologists. Um, you want to give us a few examples? We've been in a very productive phase of hypothesizing, of saying, like about 15 years ago, a, a bunch of people, a bunch of scholars and scientists, kind of at the same time, realized that this was a problem, that, that fiction is an evolutionary riddle. Um, it is costly. You spend a lot of time in fictional universes. You expend a lot of creative energy. And this is all time and energy that could be uh, devoted to useful things, things like, you know, getting more resources or trying to win mates, things with, with evolutionary payoff. And so we've entered this time of trying to come up with a story to explain it. You know, evolution is a storytelling uh, discipline. When you first come up with an evolutionary story, uh, to explain it, and then you try to come up with ways to test the story. So a couple of the stories that have come out, one is just a byproduct. It has no evolutionary purpose at all, just a side effect of the way our minds happen to work. For instance, you know, one idea is like we are so drawn to the fake struggles of fake people because we're just nosy and gossip-hungry. That's just kind of the creature we are, and, it, and fiction plays to our uh, obsession with what is going on in other people's lives. So it's just a byproduct, but it, but, but it serves no evolutionary purpose. Other people say, no, it, fiction is too widespread, it's too universal. It develops regularly in, in these developmental stages in little children. It must have an evolutionary function. And some have suggested, well, it must have an individual-level function. It helps individual people survive and reproduce better. How? Well, one way, maybe it's by giving them a sort of virtual reality experience where they get to go into a virtual reality world, sort of like a flight simulator, and experience and engage with the sort of big problems in human life. And to go through those problems, to imaginatively simulate them, and to get better at solving those problems in, in real life. And others have said, no, the benefit is at the group level. The benefits for the society, for the culture. Story gives us models of how to behave it helps uh, draw the people together around a common identity, around, around common cultural norms. And this is really easy to see with folk tales. For folk tales and of, of traditional cultures, um, you know, define the people, uh, set up rules and regulations, introduce you to the nature of reality, the gods and the spirits and all that stuff, and basically sort of f- f- uh, function as a sort of social glue. Um, and the truth is that with all of these different explanations, we don't know which one is right, and to some extent, they may all be right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's the idea that it might be a kind of uh, instrument of moral instruction, since a lot of stories, most stories have morals. The wicked generally get punished, and the good succeed. Or they teach you know, other sort of community virtues and, and rules and regulations, as you say. 
Yeah. Or maybe it's just a great way of packaging information. Um, mm-hmm. we, t- we tend to remember things much better if they're in story form. Absolutely. Um, just yeah. just like we can remember words better if they're in a song than if they're just recited yeah. without a melody or a rhythm. Or uh, another another interesting theory is that it's part of sexual selection, which was a, a Darwinian idea, one of Darwin's ideas, that not only um, does natural selection work in the sense that animals adapt to the environment around them, but the process of selecting a mate also imposes sort of a pressure on uh, selective direction. So when a, let's say, a female bird says yes to a male, she's selecting mm-hmm. certain traits, the male's... Yeah the male's colorful yeah. feathers and his great song and all of that, and maybe his storytelling ability in the case of humans. Yeah, that's right. And this is, uh, again, just yet another theory to throw on the pile. Uh, Darwin, when he first, you know, when he was first coming up with his idea of natural selection, he used to look at the peacock's tail and said it made him want to vomit. <laughs> Uh, and the reason was, despite its beauty, it was so at odds with his theory. His theory is utilitarian. The, the idea is, you know, the evolutionary uh, process is ruthlessly utilitarian. It should always be paring away things like a peacock's tail that slow a creature down and make him bright and gaudy and easy for predators to see and easy for predators to catch. Why, in God's name, does he have that tail? And he came up with a theory of sexual selection to explain it. Um, it's a way of attracting mates. It's not about survival so much as reproduction. Um, and the argument is uh, that some people make um, is that that art is the same thing. That art is this gaudy and useless show-off um, where people, where artists, uh, make a big display of their creativity, their intelligence, um, the qualities of their minds. Now again, this is, this is always this is a little bit um, complex. But if you if you look at your own hand, and you ask yourself, what's the evolutionary function of my hand? You say, well, I can grab stuff. I can I can make fists and punch stuff. I can reach out and caress someone lovingly. You know, your hand. I can I can wave it around in the air as I'm doing right now to help myself amplify my communication. Um, so the hand is for a lot of stuff. And my own hunch is that storytelling is also for a lot of stuff, that it was shaped by multiple evolutionary selection pressures. And so a lot of these narratives of, that, uh, that try to explain storytelling in evolutionary terms, they're not mutually incompatible. Um, these, these, these can all be right to different extents, and they may also all be wrong. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, in talking about all these explanations of of storytelling, you know, you're just offering, and I think you you mentioned that you're just offering your own story uh, of stories, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, who is a great critic of sociobiology and evolution, evolutionary psychology, described evolutionary psychology and sociobiology as just so storytelling, and, and it was right, meant yeah. as a term of abuse. And the idea was that evolutionary psychologists were just spinning stories, and it's easy to spin stories, uh, but, th- but that's not science. But evolutionary science always does start with a story. It always does. Even Stephen Jay Gould's evolutionary stories were always about telling a story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one of the things I, I, I did was just kind of come out and fess up to it, that what I'm doing is trying to sculpt uh, a plausible narrative about how storytelling, the storytelling impulse might have become such an entrenched and ingrained part of human nature. Um, and the story I tell may be wrong. It really may be. 
uh, or maybe right uh, in part. Um, and what I hope is that the book will attract attention, not only from people in literary studies or journalists, peep story people, um, but from scientists, and especially experimental scientists, people who can start developing and devising clever ways of testing these ideas, seeing which stories are right and which stories are, are probably wrong. One thing I do like about the sexual selection explanation, um, though I, I'm not weighing in and saying I believe it's true, uh, is that it does point to the fact that not only do we like to hear stories, but we love to retell them, and in retelling them, we appropriate a little bit of the glory of the story to ourselves. And, and you know, this ex- gets back to that uh, infamous Mike Daisy episode where he embellished yeah. substantially on his trip to China, exposing the bad working conditions in those uh, electronics factories. And he did it partly, I think he's, he's as much as, as admitted it, because it made his work bigger and better thus more props for him. So yeah. when we tell stories, we kind of swell up with pride. Oh, absolutely. I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. There's a lot of hypocrisy surrounding the Mike Daisy thing. You know, we all jumped on him, and there was a feeding frenzy, got torn apart by sharks. Um, and I just felt a tremendous amount of pity for him, and I said, there, but for the grace of God, go I. <laughs> you know? Oh, really? How um, come? How come? What? Well, just because, not, I don't think I would do that. And I, sp- I certainly wouldn't do it in a public uh, format like that, like where I went on the radio and told the whole world a big lie. Um, but we do have, as you were saying, this tendency, you know, if you're with your friends and you're having beers with your friends and you're telling stories about some thing that happened to you, you know, there's a tendency to make the, tall, the tale a little taller. <laughs> For sure. To, to swell up a little bit, to, to tell the tale in a way that's really going to rivet their attention. It's going to make them smile bigger, laugh harder. Um, I think we all do this. I think it's a, 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 a pretty strong tendency in the way we, we communicate with each other. Uh, and Daisy is an extreme example of you know of pushing this too far and doing it in the in the in the wrong sort of way. Now, my background in part is in both science and journalism, and science journalism, <laughs> putting them both together. And w- part of the journalistic training uh, it, it goes well beyond gathering facts and faithfully relaying them, you know, to an audience. Mm-hmm. It is how to shape them into good, compelling stories so that people yeah. will care. And I was always deeply ambivalent about that because I found that when I went out to report something, it often didn't fit the outlines of a good story. Too many complexities, too many things that contradicted each other that didn't make for a really cool plot line. Mm -hmm. And I always felt kind of awful about having to clean up the story and package it for publication, let's say. Um, And and there's a lot of pressure on journalists to do that, and sometimes it, it forces them over the line. I wonder how much this storytelling regime that we live in causes us to distort things, causes us to oversimplify, causes us to exclude all of the really ambiguous stuff of which the world really seems to be made. I think it's a very smart observation. And I I think the answer is it distorts it an awful lot. (laughs) Uh, You know from your work, and I know from mine. Um, if you want to sell a magazine article, sell a newspaper article, sell a, a nonfiction book about storytelling, there is pressure to tell the story in the most exciting, powerful, dramatic uh, narrative way. Um, and people in that business are often walking that line between doing so in a way that's completely legitimate and fun and interesting and cool. 
um, and then stretching a little too far. I mean, I have a little example of this today. Uh, I'm working on an article about sort of my experience as an academic, uh, sort of a, a, a retrospective. It doesn't matter what it's about, to be honest. But I'm having a lot of trouble with it. And I, I like the article. I like the story it tells. Um, I wrote it about six months ago, put it down to come back to it, come back to it now, and I realized that I, that I cannot publish it. Um, I can't publish it because it's not true. I, got, I let the story get away from me too mm-hmm. much. I, yeah, I, I like the story I was telling. I like the character I was mm-hmm. creating. But at bottom, it's just a distortion. And I didn't know at the end when I was writing it that it was a distortion. Um, but the this, this story, the power of the narrative and the desire to shape a compelling narrative kind of got the better of me. And I was lucky that I put it aside uh, so that I could recognize that fact. Um, because when I was writing it at the time, I wasn't aware of it. I thought I was writing a really good article. That was true. Uh, and now I think, well, you know, honestly, this, this isn't quite true. Wow. I think that's a, a kind of choice that a lot of writers and artists and others have to confront and you know some choose story over literal truth and some say no no the story just isn't isn't true enough and and they abandon it you know yeah um, it comes yeah, and I, yeah and i and i struggle with that quite a bit to be honest can yeah. i salvage this can i can i shape this back into a way that you know i'll be comfortable with and and feel happy with it and feel that it's true and uh, finally, I just decided that I that I couldn't, and I couldn't publish it. But but it's a, but yeah, it's a, it's a constant sort of temptation to to tell a better story. And this doesn't just apply to knowledge workers and people who are journalists and writers. And it applies to all of us. So we do this in work settings. We do this in social settings. There's a tendency to, as you said, make a picture of ourselves that's a little swollen, mm. make a tell a tale that's a little taller, um, because it doesn't. It does. Uh, storytelling is one way that we do enhance our status. I've been wondering, though, you know, if we get down to the, the, the bedrock definition of a story as a way of structuring information along, you know, a kind of trajectory, uh, a beginning and an end, things that develop in between, sometimes a conflict, usually a conflict, uh, but certainly a narrative through line. When do we get away from that? In what parts of our life do we ever escape that? I mean, your book is you know, packed with examples of how a lot of things really are a form of story. I mean, sports usually is a game with its rules, its beginning, its conflict, and then its resolution with a winner being declared is a storyline. And that's why we love sports so much. Every game is a story. Uh, You add the personalities to it, and it becomes, you know, as compelling as as a novel, you know, Uh, or a movie. Yeah, it's drama. Um, Politics, it's a ton of storytelling. In fact, you know, political uh, operatives talk openly of constructing narratives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it may be that, you know, what separates ideologies is what the narrative that they choose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when do we escape story? <laughs> um, well, this is a tough one because, yeah, this is a very tough one. Um, and I actually tried to, like, dodge this uh, argument, <laughs> this, whole, this whole debate in my book, yeah. uh, just because it's a, it's, a, it's a tremendous and tedious academic debate that's been going on for a long time yes. about where the line is between story and non-story. Um, and I just, you know, I just feel like, well, you know, it's like the pornography definition. You sort of, <laughs> you sort of know it uh, when you see it. Uh, I tend to focus on a, a specific type of, of narrative, though. Um, I'm actually not saying that sport is, an, is, is a story. Um, 
you're right. With a certain definition of narrative, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end, a conflict. Yeah, it kind of is story-like. Uh, but what I'm really talking about is, is, is the way that broadcasters shape story as an entertainment product. I mean, shape sport as an entertainment product. You know, so yeah. at some point the guys realize, the producers of the Olympics realize, well, we're not getting anybody but hardcore sports fans and patriots uh, to watch this, and we want to get uh, women and little children, and, uh, and so what we need to do is tell stories. We, get, we need to characterize these people so that by the time the, you know, luge event comes on, they're able to see this as, you know, sure. the climax to a drama. Uh, usually um, they have a tragedy in their background that they're overcoming. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Some treacly, tear-jerking. <laughs> it makes me, yeah, it's, it's too much even for me, and I'm a huge story addict. Uh, <laughs> but you talk about combat sports, uh, boxing, uh, mixed martial arts, wrestling. Yeah. Uh, oh, my the, God. It's, 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 all, it's all a story. It is. It's all a story. Yeah. It's, well, I mean, again, the, the fight itself, I, I, you know, I, that's a, I don't see the fight itself as a story. The, the, I mean, that's a looser definition of, of story than seems useful to me. Okay. Um, but the way it's shaped, it's always shaped in story terms. It's a sort of epic battle between two men, and they have a backstory, and they've both been through these trials and tribulations in their lives. And at some point, these two guys came into conflict, and they don't like each other, and there's reasons, and there's bad blood, and there's antagonism, and this is going to settle the score. Um, and so the fight itself is just the climax to that drama. All, what really gives the fight its tension um, is not just the violence, not just the excitement of what's happening, um, but also the backstory, what led up to it, and what is being resolved. Now, it's all manufactured. Absolutely. You know, the, the fight promoters realize that, that, that a story sells, that real bad blood or the appearance of real bad blood uh, puts, you know, puts meat in seats. Absolutely. And, and, and let's also add that whether or not the promoters have managed to dress the whole thing up with all kinds of, um, what is the great word in professional wrestling, kayfabe, is that how it's pronounced? I have no idea how to say it. I, I say kayfabe. <laughs> I, I think it has a funny, uh, non-intuitive pronunciation, but it is this business of creating a storyline with good guys, bad guys, and so on, right? Well, well kayfabe is the idea that it, it's fake, it's all made up, but we are going to pretend it's real. <laughs> kayfabe is the code of silence. <laughs> kayfabe is never, ever winking at the audience. There's no irony in pro wrestling. They never, they never blink. They, I mean, wink. They never break character. You know, one thing I've, never, I've noticed, like even watching, I went to watch a few uh, pro wrestling shows. They don't start cracking up, no matter how ridiculous <laughs> the scenario true. is, no matter how ridiculous and over the top the performance is. They never break. Like guys will sometimes break in a Saturday night, Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah. So kayfabe is, is never letting on to the audience that this isn't real. Um, no matter no matter how broadly known it is that that it isn't real, uh, but yeah, pro wrestling is is absolutely um, theater. You know, it's it's theater, it's soap operas for for boys and men. There's a tremendous amount of backstory writing. They have writers on the show to construct these things. There's tons of gossip and cattiness, and yeah, it's just like just like a real combat sports. What you see is a situation where the fight is just the climax to the story that the, the writers have painstakingly been constructing uh, throughout the episodes. By the way, while, while we were talking, I was looking up the pronunciation, and at least a number of people answering this question on uh, Yahoo 
are saying it's kayfabe. So, okay. kayfabe. So I was going to say, though, even in the absence of kayfabe, uh, let's just say a, a really um, straight-up boxing match where you know nothing about the two um, people, in order to get excited, we will project our own storylines. I'm going to root for this guy. I start to invest my own self-esteem in the outcome. And, yeah. you know, maybe it's because he is from my hometown, so it mm-hmm. becomes a kind of narrative of, of uh, you know, my tribe, you know? Yeah, yeah uh, tribal so, champion. Exactly. So, so yeah. I'm thinking that, you know, though you have a stricter definition of story than maybe I do, uh, I do think we, we project stories onto sports, whether we like it or not, and that's part of how we make them interesting to ourselves. So, you know, getting back to this idea of whether, whether we ever escape story, I mean, or is it just sort of a, an absolute fixed structure of understanding that we cannot get away from any more than we could get away from space and time as categories we need to explain the physical world, right? Um, you know, Kant said they were built into our brains. He didn't put it that way, but, mm-hmm. you know, I wonder if story is built into our brain to that extent that it, it really is the way we come to understand. In science, it's true that it's a legitimate finding if you just collect a bunch of data and report it. You know, let's say you collect the readings from a satellite on what's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And that's cool, but it's much better if you interpret that data in a way that adds to a narrative, which in the case I'm citing, it did in a big way, becoming major evidence for the Big Bang, which is a story of the universe, past, present, and future. So scientists who are, are the most objective, right, you would think. Yeah, yeah. Nonetheless, you, you know, what we really mean by scientific understanding is when it all falls into a picture that is a totally. kind of narrative, right? Totally. And then then you really yeah. feel like you, you, you've explained something. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. You're right. They're right. The data mean nothing until it's been turned into a story. <laughs> Sometimes the story is really dry, you know, and it's written in the sort of format of a scientific paper where the, the discussion section of a scientific paper. So there's a, there's a structure to a scientific paper. starts with the introduction, then you describe the, the data and methods, then you give the results. Okay, that's all dry and sciencey. Then at the end, there's a discussion. And the discussion is, here's what it all means. And that's when you're, you know, you're starting to spin a story. Science is, yeah, science doesn't escape from stories. Science is a world where uh, honest efforts or, or strong efforts are made to test the validity of story, uh, of their story. So science is just, you know, to me, science is storytelling plus hypothesis testing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but the grand sort of destination of science is ultimately a big theory oh, yeah, that, that yeah, often so, fits yeah. a, a storyline. So, so in the case well, of... mythic. I mean, in the case of the Big Bang... It's a grand, it's a grand myth that that may well be true, uh, but it, but it has all the all the grandeur of an origin story. Of an origin story, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it competes with Genesis, which is why it upsets religious fundamentalists. Um, mm-hmm. And then in in biology, um, you know, uh, the great uh, evolutionary biologist Theodosius Dobzhansky said, "Nothing in biology makes sense except yeah. in light of evolution." And that means that, you know, it's not just a matter of looking at all these diverse animal and plant forms. It's really a, a matter of understanding how they came to be, another origin story. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried to imagine when I was reading your book what human life would be like without story uh, or whether we ever find ourselves without story and what that's like. And I thought of two examples. One is just total madness, the kind of madness where you can't piece anything together and everything is a constant barrage of disconnected detail. 
Uh, I haven't experienced that, but, you know, that supposedly is what happens to some people. And then the other possibility that occurred to me is what some Eastern religions especially speak of as enlightenment, nirvana, where where storylines dissolve, where causation is no longer, you know, really material, and you're, and you're really thinking about, you know, complete unity. That's, that's a storyless condition, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Am, Am I going too far there, you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, as you started to talk, I, I started ransacking my head also for examples of uh, storylessness. I don't, I don't know enough about the, the Eastern religions to comment intelligently on them. Uh, but, you know, I, I, mean, I did think of autism. Um, yeah, yeah. Autism is, uh, has been called a disorder of the imagination. And one of the two prime diagnostic cues of autism is that little kids do not engage in pretend play. Um, and adults with autism are often not attracted to fiction. Uh, they don't understand it really. They're not interested in it. They don't get it. Autism uh, is, is often described as sort of a deficiency in theory of mind. You know, you can't understand what's going on in other people's heads. Uh, and that seems to be what, one thing that fiction really requires is the ability to get out of your own head and into somebody else's perspective. So maybe autism. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that, that would count. Yeah, uh, it's funny. My, my image was more drastic than that, that without any kind of help from the idea of a narrative, the idea of a structured sequence of events in time that follow a kind of uh, trajectory, that you would be pretty much at sea. Autism isn't that... No, it's not. You yeah, know, you're right. Isn't you're right. that extreme. So, so you know, you may be right. Maybe storylessness isn't as extreme a condition as I was imagining it to be. No, no, I think, I think you're right. True storylessness uh, it, it strikes me as your first example, as a sort of, as a, as a sort of helpless madness, where everything is, you know, to use uh, William James's phrase, a blooming, buzzing confusion. Oh yes, yes. Uh, with you know, just 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 chaos and noise and disorder and ignorant armies cra- cra- clashing in the night. You know, just just uh, pointlessness. Uh, on the other hand, um, and, and uh, you, you cite neurological research that points to. Where these faculties arise in the brain, you know, this 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 attempt to fit the world into, um, you know, cogent storylines, mm. um, that mechanism can go berserk, and you can have hyperactive storytelling. And I want to um, play an example uh, from an interview I did. I was doing street man on the street interviews about a subject totally unrelated to what you're about to hear, but right. but, but the answer evolved into this account of some plot that was originating at the Los Alamos National Laboratories. <laughs> okay. And what they do is, is that they plug into atomic fuel generators, and those generators then flood uh, gases into cable networking celeron fields. The intent was to control and to manipulate electoral and election events. Wait for the evening time, and if you see a gas light of nitrogen gas that seems to strike at you or any part of your body, then you're actually being optically neural gassed with a neural um, nitrogen carbon gas from Los Alamos. It resulted in the death of over 3,000 little babies within the Los Alamos area. So you, you heard this gentleman talking about this idea that you know the Los Alamos National Labs were sending out these gas rays that are uh, affecting people at great distances. Does that remind you of any stories? 
Oh my goodness! Yes, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, you, you you're talking about James Tilly Matthews? I am. Yes, Matthews, uh, who was this 18th century fellow, had this idea that malevolent characters, and they had names like Bill the King and the Glove mm-hmm. Woman, under the hospital right where he was confined. Yeah, uh, had this machine uh, that was sending all these noxious vapors mm-hmm. uh, directly at him uh, through mm-hmm. this machine he called the heirloom. And by the way, when we say heirloom. We mean a loom for weaving air, not heirloom is in the sense of like a family hand, oh, right, hand right. me down. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you describe it in your book. And and here again, the story I had involved no, essentially noxious gases being directed at us from long distances by some nefarious characters. Yeah, so James Tilly Matthews basically believed that all of his actions were being uh, controlled by a, this complicated influencing machine that was in control of all of his thoughts and all of his actions for nefarious purposes, for this plot that was uh, going to overthrow England. Um, but what's interesting about these sorts of conspiracy theorists isn't how rare they are or how bizarre their activity is, but how absolutely common it is. You know, if you Google conspiracy theory, you get tens of millions of hits, and there's conspiracies for just about everyone. Um, and we all believe that it's the other guy who has the conspiracy theory. But I think if you went around and you did a careful study of this, you'd find that most of us um, hew to one ill-grounded conspiracy theory <laughs> or another. Maybe not as extreme as this guy's that you just played. Um, you know, again, I described it as sort of hyperactive storytelling. Uh, this may or may not be a psychologically accurate description, but it's my sense that whatever that mechanism we have that imposes order on the world by linking up facts into an explanation and a pattern can get out of whack, can can get, go overboard and start linking up all kinds of things that are in no way connected into an incredibly logical or pseudo-logical story right, right. <laughs> that, that explains how everything works yeah, all, by intention right. of somebody, uh, often involving weird technology or magic or something like that. And, and then again, uh, you, you talk about how there is this uh, very fuzzy line between having a hyperactive imagination that goes all the way over into, say, paranoid schizophrenia, or, on the other hand, just makes you a really creative person and a, a successful artist. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this is very impressive. Uh, if autism is sort of a, a lack of stories or a lack of the same sort of, sort of stories that, that uh, psychologically healthy people or ordinary people are telling, then you can look at sort of schizophrenia and uh, forms of bipolar. These things can evince themselves as a kind of story madness. You know, this wild and promiscuous overproduction of narratives that can be quite harmful. So for James Tilly Matthews, this is very harmful for him to believe these things, to have these stories in his head, to not be able to recognize that he was spinning fictions and living inside them. But for other people, you know, if, you know, if you look around and you poll and do scientific studies of uh, artists, creative people, especially poets and writers, you find highly elevated uh, rates of bipolar, schizophrenia, um, a host of different uh, mental problems. And, you know, this is, this is uh, bad, and it shouldn't be uh, romanticized. But also, you know, it's, it's led to a lot of wonderful art. You know, just uh, as an example, um, Melville was, you know, quite sick when he wrote uh, Moby Dick. And the book is sort of half crazy in its creativity, and it's kind of because uh, Melville was sort of half crazy when he was writing it. And, mm-hmm. you know, without uh, his 
mental problems, which plagued him his whole life and made his life miserable, um, we probably would not have had, you know, the greatest of all the great American novels. Um, I don't want to leave my listeners with the impression that we're saying artists are nuts, but, I mean, a, a lot of fiction creators, maybe it would be safe to say, put themselves, when they're deep in the creative process, when their characters are speaking to them, when the story... I know in many cases it doesn't really write itself, but they like to say it does. Mm-hmm. But, but when the story starts speaking to them and evolving on its own, they are putting themselves in a kind of special state of mind. That, yeah. That if you didn't have control over it, if it took over, would be a kind of craziness. Well, there's a chicken and egg question. It's like, it's like <laughs> you know, so writers are, writers, are, writers are crazy, let's say, as a wild over, over, over generalization. So writers are crazy. Did they get crazy because they, they were already crazy and the craziness made them a good writer? Or was it something about the writing, about be, living inside your imagination, living inside your study, never seeing other human beings uh, that drove them crazy? And one way you can, you can uh, help to solve this problem is by looking at the relatives, um, do you find higher levels of madness, of uh, mental illness, of suicide, drug addiction, alcoholism among their first-degree relatives, uh, which would suggest that it wasn't, you know, and basically the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they, have, they have kind of solved that chicken and egg question to some extent. Oh, you're saying um, that in cases where, uh, let's say, a famous writer did seem to have some psychological problem. Right. Yeah. And you're saying, was it organic? Well, if you do look at their family history, you might find, you know, uh, some bipolar disorder running through the family or something like that. Yeah, sure. On the other hand, you know, the majority of them aren't. uh, And at least the psychologists I've talked to study to say, you know, we can go overboard in saying crazy and creativity are are linked. Um, Oh, certainly. Yeah. But but on the other hand, like I say, those those artists who know how to channel that particular state of mind uh, can do so to to great effect. Um, Linda Berry, the the cartoonist, uh, who's who's quite sane. I'm not implying anything <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> wonderful person, um, told me in an interview that she was so in love with her favorite character, Marlis. I don't know if you've ever read her cartoons, but she has this character, Marlis. That yeah, I don't believe I have. Once she followed a girl down the street who looked like Marlis, oh. and, and at one point she actually cried when she thought about the fact that she would never really meet Marlis in person. She loved that character so much. Yeah. And, of course, those of us who, who read the, you know, the stories also wish we could really meet those characters in real life. And you talk about people who – we've already talked about how much of our lives we devote to stories um, – and people who go even further and try to immerse themselves in stories with um, what are called live-action role-playing games or, mm-hmm. or or in the case of sort of historical reenactors who spend a lot of time trying to recreate a world uh, and live in it for a time. Yeah, like uh, Renaissance fairs. Yeah, yeah. And Civil War <laughs> reenactors. Um, yeah, these are forms of make-believe. This is, this is a, a grown-up form of, of make-believe. Uh, and they're sort of still kind of weirdo subcultures, you know, so LARP, for instance, live-action role-playing, is really a, you know, I, I love it, I really admire uh, LARPers, um, but it has sort of a, a cultural stink on it, you know, where even dorks who play D&D, like, you know, my, my, me and my friends used to play D&D, but we would never That's be That's Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. Uh, LARPing, you know. <laughs> oh, no. Um, 
So, uh, but, you know, it's, it's funny because, again, we, we do similar things all the time. So games, uh, video games, for instance, are really just digital forms of LARPing, or many of them are. So if you have, like, a very popular role-playing game, like the World of Warcraft, you have, like, 12 million uh, subscribers who play the game, love it. Um, what they're really loving about it is LARP. You know, you get to be a character inside a fiction world, making believe with all of your friends, uh, living the stories, interacting with the stories, cooperating and basically writing the story. Uh, so I think uh, you know, we're going to see a lot more of this LARP-like activity, but it will be happening you know, in digital worlds and not in the real world. Uh, you, know, you, you mentioned that in Brave New World, Aldous Huxley had a version of virtual reality that he called um, playing off the, the word talkies for, for movies with sound, feelies, right? Mm. Yep. <laughs> People would plug in and, and feel uh, the emotions of the characters in a fiction of some kind. Yeah, yeah. You would uh, you'd, you'd go to the theater and you'd, you'd put your hands on the sort of metal uh, balls, and the, the, the metal balls would convey uh, electricity to your nervous system, and you would have all the sensations that the characters in the, no, in the, in the fiction would have. So you, these, these were films. Um, but they weren't very story-like. They were just about sensory experience. They were a bunch of porn and shootouts and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, there wasn't much story to hold the thing together. Uh, I think the better model for what we'll see in the, in the future isn't Huxley's feelies, but Star Trek's holodeck. Uh, on the holodeck in Star Trek, holodeck is like a little walk-in closet where uh, you can realistically simulate any world. And on the holodeck, uh, the characters can enter into hollow novels. So John Luc Picard likes to go into the holodeck and enter into a hollow novel where he is a detective, like a Raymond Chandler-style detective. And one of the female characters likes to go into the holodeck and go into hollow novels where she's the heroine of a Jane Austen-style romance novel. Uh-huh. Um, and I think this is what video games are going to give us. They're going to give us... Um, story worlds that are increasingly rich. Right now, uh, video games are offering us stories to get inside, but the genre is the action film. Uh, you get to go inside the, the, the game, and you are the rock-jawed hero of the action film. You're not passive, passively watching the action film. You're inside of it. Um, and that's part of the, the draw of the games. Um, but these are going to get better. Uh, right now, the video game industry is pretty satisfied with just having testosterone drunk young men, you know, play their games. Uh, but more and more, they're going to want to have women uh, coming to play these games. Uh, and then, so the stories will change and diversify and get richer uh, with time. Well, as technology makes it possible to experience you know, this kind of vicarious or simulated stuff with more and more realism and maybe also frees people from having to work so much. Do you think there's a day coming when people will just jack into the fantasy world and never leave it? <laughs> that's one of those science fiction scenarios. It is. You it's, know, it's, it's very old. It's a cliche, um, yeah. And kind of cliche, but I think totally plausible. Again, what, what you're going to have... Within a few decades, if you just imagine what these worlds are going to be like, these imaginative digital worlds in a few decades, you're going to have worlds that are super, super compelling. You know, right now there's a sort of cultural stereotype. The guy who plays World of Warcraft and plays for 40 hours a week is a loser, (laughs) you know, and he goes into that world because he gets to be a, a wizard and a hero with big muscles and girls like him, and he's got power, and, and, and his life in World of Warcraft is just better 
than his day-to-day real-life life. Um, and, but isn't a day coming, plausibly, where life inside a digital game or inside digital wonderlands really is just better than real life for regular people, for successful people? Um, if, if it is going to be like the Hollow Novel or like the Holodeck, uh, isn't that a tremendously dangerous technology? That's something that Star Trek never really wrestled with. The holodeck is like, you know, it's like a hydrogen bomb. It's a horribly destructive <laughs> technology where, because if you had this, you know, closet where you got to walk in and, you know, as soon as you walked in, you were God and you could do whatever you wanted. You know, why would you want to come out? So I think it's a, it's a, it's a plausible scenario. That, that's it's the ways off, of course, but uh, it's not hard for me to imagine. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, you mentioned that you have young kids, two daughters, right? That's right. Uh, and so you get to spend time with... Um, children who who really are great practitioners of storytelling. They'll just sit and make up their own stories and sort of act them out to themselves. And that gives parents a chance to be like kids and sort of go back to that that consciousness, too. Um, but you don't mention any stories that have had a huge impact on you. Well, I mentioned The, uh, the Road. Uh, oh, Cormac the, McCarthy. Yeah, in, in, the, in the preface to the book, I mentioned The Road, um, which is, again, which one of these stories that made me kind of inspired me to write the book. Uh, you know, I also mentioned this country music song that I, that I experienced where I was driving down the road in this beautiful day feeling good, uh, and this country music song comes on. And it's, about, it's basically about a, a little girl grow, growing up to leave her father behind. And, you know, one second I'm feeling good driving down the road. The next second I am weeping. I'm crying. I can't see. I have to pull off the road to just have a breakdown. Hey, hey Jonathan, and, Jonathan? Yeah. Do you have a, a handkerchief nearby? No. Uh, okay, well, you're just going to have to weep all over yourself, because listen to this. I came to see her daddy For a sit-down man to man There wasn't any secret I'd be asking for hand I guess it's why he left me waiting In the living room by myself With at least a dozen pictures of her Sitting on a shelf She was playing Cinderella She was riding her first bike Bouncing on the bed And looking for a pillow fight Running through the sprinkler With a big popsicle grin Dancing with her dad Looking up at him in her eyes I'm Prince Charming But to him I'm just some fella Riding in and stealing Cinderella I'm not going to make you listen to the whole thing, but that is the song you're talking about, right? Yeah, that's Chuck Wicks' Stealing Cinderella. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and this had this really powerful effect on me where uh, out of the blue it kind of crept up on me and uh, had this really powerful emotional response to it. And as I'm having that response, I'm, and I'm also having sort of this kind of out-of-body experience where I'm looking down at myself and, whoa, this is weird. Why am I crying? I mean, I'm not really a crier. But I think, I think you know, we've all had an experience like this where, you know, when we surrender to fiction in whatever form, even this kind of, you know, country music song, you allow yourself to be invaded by the teller and you kind of just give up control 
of your whole cognitive and emotional apparatus. You know, Chuck Wicks was in control there. And, yeah, and I wrote the book partly to try to understand what happened to me that day and, and in so doing to try to understand uh, something more about the, you know, this really weird and witchy power that story has in human life. Mm. Uh, among the many thoughts that came to my mind when I was reading your book is that stories not only help us organize the flux and chaos of the phenomenal world, but they're, they're particularly a way in which we try to cope with time, which is in some ways the scariest and most untamable force of all. Can you expand a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, because the, the essence of a story is obviously a sequence in time. Uh, and it makes that sequence familiar, it domesticates it, whereas the onrush of time, the, the way it ceaselessly takes things away from us and will eventually kill us and kill everybody we know, is something we can't otherwise cope with. That's that's my thought about stories. Yeah, and you think, you think maybe story uh, is... is, is consoling in that regard, or, or yeah. as, you said, as you said, tames it. Yeah, yeah I don't know, I don't know. Um, Stories in general, again, are, are worlds of anxiety and pain and suffering. And even like, even light stories are all, always organized around trouble. So if it's a romance novel or if it's a, a comedy or a sitcom, you know, it's always about the characters and their troubles and how they're going to strive to overcome them. But they tend to ha- end happily. So I don't know about the, uh, I don't know about the time thing. I hadn't actually thought about that. It's really kind of an interesting uh, perspective. But I do think that the overall, you know, structure of storytelling does tend toward consolation. Again, this is a striking pattern across cultures. Story doesn't didn't have to be organized this way. There's nothing. There was nothing inevitable about this. There's nothing even particularly uh, logical about why it's structured this way. But stories are always a, a, a problem-solution complex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, they do tend to give a little bit of comfort because, for the most part, unless you're watching a tragedy, uh, the dominant pattern is things went badly, but then it was okay at the end. <laughs> but re- but remember, there is an end usually. There is this thing we crave, which is called closure, which is exactly the thing that real life, real time, you know, the march of time does not give us. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's one of the things that's so profoundly artificial about storytelling. Um, the end. <laughs> you know, and in the end comes right in the middle of these young lovers' lives, you know. <laughs> right, uh, right. And, yeah, so that's one of the things that, again, we're, we're, we're just so accustomed to that sort of weird convention of storytelling, that these stories end, um, that, we, that we don't stop to realize how odd it is. Well, interviews end, too, and I'm sorry to see this one come to a close. I've really enjoyed it. Okay, thank you. It was, yeah, it was really nice talking to you as well. There is fiction in the space between Lines on your page of memories Write it down but it doesn't mean You're not just telling stories Jonathan Gottschall's latest book is The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. You've been listening to The 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And you can always visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com There is fiction in the space